Welcome to Plodcast, episode 64. Thank you for joining us. It's great to have you with us. I hope that you're enjoying your drive or whatever it is you're doing while you listen to these things. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, theistic evolution. Theistic evolution. On the one hand, um, let's, um, let's begin with an observation about uh, atheistic evolution. I, I agree with Malcolm Muggeridge, who once said that evolution in retrospect will be seen to have been one of the great jokes of history. Um, when I think about the, uh, the immense complexities and the irreducibly complex systems that go into virtually every form of life, and I, and I listen to unbelievers or atheists talking, uh, uh, talking as though natural selection could do anything remotely approaching what they're claiming it can. I just want to say, you know, just stop. Just stop. Evolution is not simply erroneous. Atheistic evolution is not simply erroneous. It is also uncommonly silly. So uh, that's, that's one thing. And we need to, I think we need to start responding to some of these claims that are beyond absurd with something like a, a horse laugh. Now, Having said that, uh, if you introduce an omnipotent creator who used evolution as his means of creating, now you, you've, uh, you've come up with something that can overcome all the absurdities. Uh, evolutionists are fond of taunting uh, creationists with the uh, god of the gaps. You know, you, every time you've got a bridge or something, you've, uh, a chasm, you bring God in to, to get you across that chasm. Well, that's what theistic evolution is. Uh, um, the evolutionary hypothesis is mostly gaps, almost all gaps. And a theistic evolution is uh, serving the ultimate God of the gaps. And it, and it is true that if you introduce an omnipotent being who decided to bring life as we know it about by means of evolutionary processes. If he's omnipotent, then uh, we, you know, we don't get to charge him with absurdity because it was done on purpose. Uh, what is absurd to, uh, it is absurd to assume that something can happen all by itself. It's not absurd to say that an all-powerful God can do that thing. So, uh, so on the one hand, the one thing that theistic evolution has going for it is that it solves the likelihood or lack of likelihood problem that the secular evolutionist faces. How is it possible for these lucky freak accidents to keep happening over and over and over again? Um, the butterfly that looks like a dried up leaf or the insect that looks like a dried up leaf. Uh, it looks like it's frayed around the edges. And the insect doesn't know that it's doing anything of the kind, right? The, the genes that code for sight are blind. The genes that code for hearing are deaf. The genes that code for taste uh, cannot taste anything themselves. They're just fumbling their way in the dark. They don't know anything. So there you are. You've got... Um, 
this gigantic absurdity if there is no God. And all of a sudden, at least in terms of design and power and intervention, you've got a God of the gaps who can intervene in all those multiple gaps that occurred between the uh, first appearance of organic life and um, the development of human beings. Having said that, there are two. So theistic evolution does solve one problem. It solves the problem of the apparent design that's screaming at us from every direction. Okay, it looks designed because it was designed. It solves that problem. But it lands us in two uh, two problems that are, I think, unsolvable. Uh, one is if in in Romans, Paul tells us that uh, through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. Everything that dies, um, all sentient life that dies, anything that leaves a fossil, um, you know, fossil bones, anything that leaves a fossil is a record of something that happened after the fall. When you read through Genesis, and just let's let's leave aside for the moment uh, whether there's any poetic expression or you know the framework framework hypothesis or whatever, leave that out for a minute. What's undeniable is prior to Adam and Eve's sin, however you conceive that whatever you conceive that sin to be, prior to that time, God declares everything good. So God creates. Day, you know, day one, it's good. Day two, it's good. Everything's good. And behold, it's very good. So God likes what he's doing. God likes what he's doing. And then when you get to the crown of creation, man is created, then woman. Uh, so the crown of creation is man, and the crown of the man is the woman. Um, so that all happens, and then they fall into sin. They do the one thing that's prohibited. Now, a believing Christian is going to say any record that we have of agonistic death, death, death that is accompanied by agony and pain, nature red in tooth and claw, has to post-date that rebellion by man because man is, man is the one who brought death into the world. And if you deny that, you have to say that nature red in tooth and claw is something that God smiles on and says, behold, it is very good. And if and someone might want to swallow that reductio and say, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to say that. And then you should ask them, so when, what do you think St. Peter's going to say at the pearly gates when you get there and you ask for a sack full of puppies so you can kick them? so that you can dissect them alive. All right. He said, well, no, we're, we're not sadists here. Well, you'd say, well, this is the way uh, there was this kind of suffering prior to the fall, and God smiled on it and said, behold, it was very good. Why, why was it good then and not good now? So I believe all confessing Christians have to say death, disease, suffering are things that were introduced into the world by sin. Now, I don't. I, I by saying this, I don't want to uh, intimate that that the perfect world before the fall was made out of stainless steel. Somehow, um, Adam and Eve could eat the fruit, and that fruit would break down in their stomachs. Enzymes would break it down, and 
and leaves could fall off of trees in the Garden of Eden. You could you could um, have leaves rot, and you could you could use mulch. I don't I I believe that there was such a thing as decay. I believe there was such a thing as entropy in in the Garden of Eden before the fall. But there was no agonistic death. There was entropy was not out of control. Entropy was not a river that had flooded its banks. Entropy, all the entropy was beneficial. So uh, before the fall, if Adam had um, had a deck of cards and shuffled them, it wouldn't have come up. The first one wouldn't have been four aces because it's a perfect world, and then a royal flush because it's a perfect world. And then, you know, um, that's you can have increased randomization, which is what entropy is, uh, without sin. You just can't have agony without sin. And so man, man introduced death and suffering and agony as, as a result of what he did. Now, the other problem is, is you can't, if, if you start denying, if you start messing with the time frames of Genesis, if you start denying the creation account and you affirm theistic evolution, uh, you can be assured that that's not the only doctrine that's going, that, that's under uh, siege. Other things are going to follow. So, among theistic evolutionists, among theistic evolutionists, it, it has become acceptable, some even professing uh, evangelicals, to say that there was not a literal historic Adam and Eve. Uh, perhaps God called a group of hominoid uh, uh, primates out and said, okay, you're going to be the first people. And someone like James K.A. Smith uh, even argues that the fall was not a fall um, from innocence into corruption, but rather was an upward struggle via trial and error where uh, it was actually maturation. Uh, these hominoid beings struggling through trial and error upward, and the fall was actually an ascent. Um, now, when, once you've gotten to the point where you're saying that my interpretation of the fall was that it was a fall upward, it was a climbing upward, uh, and that's a pretty good indication that you've gone seriously wrong somewhere. And I would, I would submit that that, that teaching, uh, embraced and unrepented, is, um, is heretical. That's just, that's just right at the root of the tree. Um, so, uh, and it reminds me of uh, the old reprobate Ambrose Bierce's definition. Uh, I forget what this was the definition of. Oh, uh, so Ambrose Bierce, maybe it was, uh, he was defining uh, either infralapsarian or superlapsarian, which was a Calvinistic, intramural Calvinistic debate. Um, but Ambrose Bierce, the uh, reprobate wit, said that this was a debate between those who held that Adam fell down and those who maintained that Adam slipped up. Well, we, we actually have people arguing, urging today that Adam slipped up. The book I want to review for this uh, episode of the podcast is called Daughter of Time. Daughter of Time. And it's by Josephine Tay. That's a, a pen name for a woman, a, a detective writer, and her, her real name I have forgotten, Elizabeth something. So uh, Josephine Tay, Daughter of Time. 
Now, this is a really, uh, uh, this was a really interesting whodunit. Um, uh, the setup, it's a fictional, basically what this is, is a fictional uh, setup where a detective, a Scotland Yard uh, detective, is uh, laid up in a hospital, absolutely bored to tears, um, because he's just staring at the ceiling. He's in traction or something. He's got he he uh, he's there for weeks, and he has uh, nothing to, nothing to read that he wants to read. Nothing to do, and he's he's a good cop, and um, and he's just sort of at loose ends. Uh, as a result of some um, interesting things that happen from some of his visitors who know that he's bored, he he gets onto a. Um, um, a jag, a historical jag, um, concerning Richard the Third. All right, now Richard the Third made you know made famous by Shakespeare, my kingdom, uh, you know my kingdom for a horse. Uh, Richard the Third is known for having murdered his two nephews, uh, who were, according to the story, uh, a threat to his um, to him keeping the crown. <clears throat> he, he, so he famously, uh, there are a number of things about him. Um, uh, he's supposed to have been a hunchback. He's supposed to have been a really malevolent character and the murderer of his nephews and courageous in battle, but that's about all you can say for him. And uh, as a result of uh, a few stray comments, this uh, detective, uh, Grant is, is his name, starts uh, pursuing uh, this as a cold, the ultimate cold case. So did Richard III actually murder his two nephews? And he comes to the astounding conclusion that uh, Henry III was one of history's great good guys, and that the culprit was actually Henry VII, who framed Richard. Henry VII is um, Richard's successor, and basically Henry VII framed Richard III. And uh, the book is uh, full of interesting details. Now, if if you're an American, basically one of the things that is um, apparent in this is that uh, there are a lot of um, you know the, the the people who who got an English education in the middle of the 20th century were told all the basic facts of history. They knew their history. They knew they knew about Richard III, and they knew that he murdered his nephews and so on. Um, but they what they knew was false. What they knew was not was simply not true. And uh, what happens is um, this detective makes the acquaintance of um, and befriends an American researcher who is willing to make trips to the library for him and look things up. And he gets various histories and he, he puts the basic facts together. And he, he uh, discovers that Richard III is uh, an honorable and a noble man, did not, did not murder his nephews. There's no reason to assume that he had anything that uh, not only that... <laughs> Uh, he, it's not just that they weren't they were murdered and he had nothing to do with it. It's that they weren't murdered by Richard at all, and uh, and his enemies at the time didn't make such an accusation and so forth. So 
it's the uh, ultimate uh, exercise in historical revisionism. Um, so how can we frame somebody in history, make him the ultimate bad guy, and just tell the story over and over? Um, so it, it's a fascinating read if, you're, if you enjoy history at all, particularly if you enjoy the history of Eng, uh, uh, the English royal line, uh, you will really enjoy this book, Daughter of Time um, by Tay, T-E-Y. So we come to our hamartiology section of podcast uh, 64. Sin is mentioned by name, hamartia, three times in the book of Revelation. The first is in the first chapter, where we are told that Jesus Christ is the first begotten from the dead and is the prince over all kings. He is the one who loved us and washed us from our sins with his own blood, 1.5. In chapter 18, Christians are told to come out of Babylon and not to be partakers of her sins. That's in 18.4. Then, in the next verse, we are told that the sins of Babylon, and I take Babylon as a figure for the old Jerusalem, are sins that have been stacked up to heaven, 18.5, and which are about to receive judgment. The Lord himself had said the same thing. The sins of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from Abel on down, would come down upon Jerusalem, which is what happened in the destruction of that city, in 70 AD. So the sins that had been piled up to heaven all came crashing down on that one generation. God in the time of the sickness, God in the You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.